Well, good morning. Welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that God's brought us together this morning. Hope you had a great Christmas and a happy new year to you coming up. We had our first wedding here last night since we merged as a church, so praise God for, for weddings. And praise God that we have an aisle that we're testing out this morning. I know everyone's equilibrium's all messed up. Something's changed. Uh, one of the richest women in America is also the most popular talk show host of all time. She was born in Mississippi to a single mother. She was raised by her mother and grandmother and reportedly often wore dresses that were made of potato sacks. But she rose out of this poverty and became extremely financially successful. Her net worth today is over $2 billion. And of course, I'm talking about Oprah Winfrey. But what a lot of people may not realize is that's not the name on her birth certificate. That's not the name on her birth certificate. The name on her birth certificate is Orpa. Is Orpa. And Orpa is the daughter-in-law of Naomi and the sister-in-law of Ruth in the book of Ruth. Oprah said in an interview once that no one in her family could read, so they never pronounced her name right, so Oprah just stuck. It's one way, I guess that's one way to get a nickname, illiteracy. And so for the next four weeks, though, we are going to be looking at the book of Ruth. And the story of Ruth has some familiarities to the early part of Oprah's story. Not in many of the details, of course, but in this way. In this way, the book of Ruth starts as a story of tragedy. The book of Ruth starts as a story of tragedy. And we'll see in just the first six verses of this book that the story opens with crisis after crisis, challenge after challenge, tragedy after tragedy. And this book that we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks is a book for people who wonder where God is when things suddenly go off the rails. The book of Ruth is for people who see things going off the rails for quite some time, in fact. It's a story for people who have ordinary lives, people with ordinary struggles, wondering how they possibly could have an impact for the Lord. And the Bible is an utterly realistic book. The Bible is not a book about everything going right in people's lives. In fact, the Bible is a brutally honest book. The Bible describes life in ways that many of us so often experience. And so the question that the book of Ruth puts to us, and particularly I think here in chapter 1 that we're going to be looking at this morning, is this. How do we live when life goes bitter? How do we live when life goes bitter. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ruth. We'll be in chapter 1 this morning. It's between the book of Judges and the book of Samuel, which I think is significant, as you'll see as we unfold this. I'm going to start by reading us verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man in Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, and the second was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's stop there. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for your word. And God, many of us come to you this morning very keenly aware of the brutality of life, the challenges of life, the trials of life, even the bitterness at times of life. And so we ask, God, that you would speak to us through your holy word. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come and illuminate the scriptures to us. And we pray that through the preaching of your word, every heart would be stirred to savor, enjoy, delight in, and be enamored with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask God for this in Jesus' name, amen. So three points this morning should be up on the slide here in a moment. Tragedy, devotion, and provision. So the first point this morning is tragedy. Let's set the stage a little here and talk about some different characters to start in this story. Um, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled. We're talking setting here. What are we supposed to think when we read that very first sentence? In the days when the judges ruled. Is this a time of peace in the life of Israel? Is this a time of prosperity in the life of Israel? What is it like in the time of of the judges. It's a challenging time to live. It's a challenging time in the life of Israel. If you read through the book of Judges, one of the recurring phrases that's going to occur is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 17, verse 6. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a very challenging time in the life of Israel. It's not a peaceful time in the life of Israel. There's chaos, there's turmoil, there's upheaval, there's civil unrest. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. There's not civil order in Israel at this time. It's a challenging time to be alive. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And some of the characters that are introduced to us here in these first few verses. This father, this patriarch, his name is Elimelech. And his main name literally means, Eli means God, Melech means king. His name means God is king. God is king. And he has a wife, Naomi, and her name means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. And for some reason, they have these two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they give them Canaanite names, and their names mean sickness and annihilation. (laughs) Don't recommend that for anyone that's pregnant right now. That's not one that we went with. And of course, we learn in a moment that they marry Moabite women. One is Orpah, and her name means something like back of the neck, or something like to turn, which you'll see its significance here in a few minutes. And of course, Ruth. And Ruth means companion. Ruth means friend. And these are the characters that the story gives us so far. 
And again, let's understand the setting a bit more before we dive into it. The story starts out and says that they're in Bethlehem of Judah. And Bethlehem, of course, means the house of bread. They're living in the house of bread. But the house of bread has no bread. Because in verse 1, we learn that there is a famine in the land. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that it's likely that there's a famine in the land because this is an act of judgment of God because of the rebellion and the disobedience of the people of Israel in the time of the judgment, of the judges. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. God's bringing judgment on the land. He's bringing famine on the land. He's taking bread out of the house of bread. And his intention was to draw people back to him, to cry out to him in prayer and repentance. Elimelech and Naomi know good and well who causes famines. They know good and well who causes famines. God does. They know that God does. Leviticus chapter 26, 3 and 4 says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. But when the rains are withheld, it is the hard hand of God. So what does Elimelech do? When the judgment of God comes to Judah in Bethlehem, famine comes, there's no bread in the house of bread. God's intention when he brings judgment is to bring people to repentance, to cry out to him for forgiveness, to ask him to turn his face back to them, to again bring bread to the land. But Elimelech leaves. He leaves. He leaves the house of bread because there is no bread and he goes to the land of Moab. He goes to the land of Moab. And Moab, uh, the name Moab is the name of one of the sons that Lot's daughter had after their incestuous relationship in the book of Genesis. So Moab is, is seen at least to be not friendly to the people of Israel. But this is the place that Elimelech goes when he leaves the house of bread. So what happens when they get there? Verse 3. What happens when they get there? Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. First famine, now widowed. She's left alone with her two sons in this foreign land. Her sons take these two wives, who we've mentioned so far, Orpah and Ruth. They marry these Moabite women. Now this is not necessarily... Against God's law, to marry a Canaanite woman would be explicitly against God's law, but this was at least frowned upon and at least seen as unwise. And so they live in Moab for another 10 years. End of verse 4. What were these 10 years like? Were her daughters in law fruitful? Did they have children? Do they produce children for her sons and grandchildren for Naomi? No. No children. And at the end of ten years, both of her sons die. Verse 5. A famine, a move to pagan Moab, the death of her husband, the marriage of her sons to foreign wives, and then the death of her sons. The brutality of life. What seems to just be unrelenting trials. 
what seems to be unrelenting struggles, setbacks, even tragedies. And this is a very honest story in a very realistic book. How many of us have been there? When it seems like one thing after another. Childlessness, struggling for many years to get pregnant. Lack of a spouse. Some of us wanting to be married for a long time, not able to find a husband or a wife. Some of us experience of being a widow or a widower. Famine, maybe not completely literally because we live in the United States by God's grace, but the fear of the ability to provide adequately. The fear of the ability to provide adequately. How many of us wanted to be further along in our careers by now? How many of us envisioned a different life when we were in our 20s and 30s? Only for it to be cut short by tragedy. Injury, sickness, death, missed opportunities, passed over, slighted by other people, whatever the reason. The answers will come to us in this book. And some of them will come by the time I'm finished with this sermon. But for now, and for this point, I just want to press one thing into you. That God knows. God knows. The sovereign and good God has put this story in the scriptures. He's put this true, very realistic, very brutal, honest account of tragedy that happened to a real family in real time and space in history. And he's the author of this book. It is infallible and without error. And this book is the very word of God. And God in his perfect mind and will put this holy word before you this morning. He put a brutally honest book in the scriptures for you to know that you are not alone. That your trial and your tragedy is not meaningless. Your trial and your tragedy is not without purpose. And most importantly... It is not outside his loving hand and care. And that's point one. Tragedy. Point two. Devotion. Verses six to 18. Would you read them with me? To yourself. (laughs) Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? 
Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for, that, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. We'll stop there. So the scene moves from Moab and now to this crossroads of sorts. They've arose, they've started to return, and they've come to kind of this crossroads in their journey together. And Naomi says to her daughters, go, go home. Go back to your, your, your mother's house. Go, go find a life for yourselves. And it's this very emotional moment. They're weeping together. They're crying together. They're clinging to one another. They've been alone this whole time. You realize why Naomi's saying this, of course, or yes, Naomi's saying this, of course, is because in, in, in a rural society thousands of years ago, the only protection for a woman was her family, was to find herself a husband or to go back to her father's house and so on and so forth. This isn't some kind of just uh, backwoods thing saying a woman's only significance is to find a husband. It's an actual act of protection. It's an act of provision. It's an act of kindness in the ancient world. And Naomi is ready to go back because she hears that God is once again giving his people food in verse 6. Naomi knows that there's no future for her anymore in Moab. So at this crossroads, as she's speaking to her daughters, she says something that I must say, upon first reading, was a bit difficult to understand. When she says to her daughters-in-law in verse 8, return, go back to your people, go back to Moab and your gods, I have a tendency to say to myself, Naomi, how can you possibly say that to these people? I mean, they've been, your, your, they've, they've been all that you've had for so long. They've been so faithful to you for so long. How could you possibly tell them to just go back? But as we've already said, that's not what Naomi's thinking is. That's not what Naomi's thinking is. Because she knows that if they go back to Judah with her, there's no guaranteed future. There's no guaranteed, at least in an in a, in a earthly, uh, uh, physical sense, there's no guaranteed future. Because already we know that Malon and Kilion were already in unwise territory to marry Orpah and Ruth. So if you bring these Moabite women back to Israel, back to Judah, back to Bethlehem, where the, where the, where the, where the bread is flowing again, it's no guarantee that anyone's going to take them to be their spouse. There's no guarantee that they would find a husband who would allow a heathen Moabite to bring her gods into their homes. There's no guarantee of sustenance. There's no guarantee of home. There's no guarantee of food. So Naomi does what seems best to her in the moment, says you'd be better off to just go back 
home. And I think we can appreciate that on some level. But I think there's a point of application for us here. Yes, Naomi is being realistic. She is thinking in terms of provision. She's thinking in terms of protection. That comes in the form of a family in the ancient world, especially for a woman. But I think Naomi is missing something here. What is the most important thing that Orpah and Ruth need? Is the most important thing that Orpah and Ruth need bread? Is the most important thing that they need a husband? Let me put it to you another way. What is the most important thing you need in your life right now? Because I tell you what the tendency is for all of us. Me included. The tendency for us right now to think the most important thing we need in our life right now is the removal of the trial. The most important thing that we think we need right now is the removal of the trial. The change of circumstance. We need things to get better. We need that promotion. We need that spouse. We need whatever it is, fill in the blank. We think that what we need most right now is the removal of the trial. We need the sickness to go away. We need the cancer to be in remission. Whatever it is. And these are really important things. I'm not trying to lower these things and say these aren't weighty matters. These are really significant, important things. And the tendency, though, is to make a really important thing to be the ultimate thing. To think that a really important thing is what I need more than I need the ultimate thing. And that's exactly the mistake on some level that I think Naomi is making right here. They don't ultimately need the removal of their trial. Brothers and sisters, listen to what James tells us. He says, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Later in verse 11, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James says that the way through a trial is to endure it. James says the path, the result, the end of a trial is through the trial. He doesn't say the removal of it. He doesn't say that the ultimate thing that the people need that he's writing to is the removal of their trial. He says they need to remain steadfast and walk through the trial. So what does that mean for Ruth and Orpah? What do Ruth and Orpah ultimately need? They ultimately need the God of Israel. More than they need Relief from famine, more than they need a husband, more than they need need provision, they need the God of Israel. And friends, more than the relief of your trial, more than the relief of whatever it is in your life, the most significant and ultimate thing that you need, you already have. You have God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place and on your behalf. And no trial, no circumstance, no loss of job, no lack of spouse, no miscarriage, no childlessness, no cancer, no anything can ever take that hope from you. So what happens? Orpah, after little persuasion, 
She, ju- she does just that. And you see her go off in verse 14, and we never hear of her ever again. We have no idea what ever happened to her, and that's where we get her name, the back of the neck, or she, she turns, she goes. But then, of course, there's Ruth. And I think it's fair to say that Ruth knows what she truly needs. And Ruth utters those beautiful words, which many of us have come to know and love, what she says in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, and your God will be my God. Beautiful words. One question you may have that I had as I was reading this text. How did Ruth know this language? How did Ruth know to talk that way? Why would Ruth desire Naomi's God even more than the appeal that Naomi was offering to go back to her family? Well, I think the only obvious answer is that she learned it from watching Naomi. She learned it from watching Naomi as she responded to her own pain. She learned it as she watched Naomi cope with her loss and her bereavement. She must have spoken, Naomi must have spoken to Ruth and Orpah often and, and counseled her in the language that she knew, the only language of hope she possibly knew, the language of, 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 of one of an Israelite, the one who trusted in the God of Israel. Even though she found herself in a strange land, her hope was still in the God of Israel. She would still talk of him and speak of him. And Ruth must have heard it, and something began to germinate in her heart and life, the work of the Holy Spirit, to the point where Ruth comes to say, whatever you have, Naomi, my mother-in-law, whatever it is that motivates you and keeps you going, whatever it is that gives you such a profound stability in the midst of such pain, whatever that is, I want it. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. There is massive application here. Here's one. Parents, be brutally honest about your own struggles in life. This is the whole point. This is the whole whoop and wharf of the plan of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That when you wake up, when you lie down, when you walk by the way, in everything you do, in all that you do, be about the Lord God. Be about God. Be about the importance and the significance of how Jesus Christ is to you. So often, the way that we disciple our children is more caught than taught. The way we respond when a trial comes. The way we respond when someone slights us. The way we respond when difficulties come. The way we respond when the diagnosis comes. Our kids are watching, they're seeing, they're grabbing, they're looking, they're sensing what is ultimately significant in my parents' life. What truly makes my mom and dad tick. Listen to Herman Bobbink. He's talking about this very notion. He says, everything educates in the family. The handshake of the father, the voice of the mother, the older brother, the younger sister, the baby in the cradle, the sick loved one, the grandparents, the grandchildren, the uncles and the aunts, the guests and the friends, prosperity and adversity, the day of feasting and the day of mourning, 
Sundays and work days. The prayer, the thanksgiving at the table, the reading of the scriptures, everything is engaged to educate one another from day to day, from hour to hour. Unintentionally, without previously devised plan, method, or system, for everything precedes an educative influence, though it can hardly be analyzed or calculated. A thousand insignificant things, a thousand trifles, a thousand details, all have their effect. It is life itself here that educates. Life in all of its greatness, life in all of its richness, Life in its sadness, life in its sorrow, life in its inexhaustibleness. The family is the school of life because there is its spring and its hearth. It was Naomi's example. And a thousand things she may have planned to say or didn't say. The way she dealt with trial, the way she dealt with setback, the way she dealt with difficulty causes a deep devotion in Ruth. It's the seeds, it's the stuff, it's the matter that the Holy Spirit used to bring about this kind of response in Ruth. This devotion that Ruth has, one to Naomi, and also this devotion that Ruth has to the God of Israel. But there's another application here for us as well. There's another application here for us as well. There's something else that we can learn here about the example of Naomi. Look at how she talks in verse 13, the second half of it. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And I'll just tip my hand a bit, jumping into the next point, but just so you see this verse. Verse 20, she says it again, just in case you thought maybe she just was having a moment of of passion in verse 13. When she gets back to Bethlehem, she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, right? She says, Call me Mara. Amara means bitter. So in verse 13, she says, The Lord has dealt exceedingly bitter with me. In verse 20, she says, Don't even call me pleasant anymore because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I think here's the application and the point for us this morning. Is that this is the language of lament. This is the language of lament. Naomi is giving to us a certain kind of language to have and to deal with in dealing with the brutality of life. You see, what Naomi does is she doesn't turn away from saying it was God who brought the tragedies in her life. She doesn't stir away from saying and even turning to God and saying, you have done this. Why have you done this? Why, what, what, what is the meaning of this? And so on. Lament is language that the Bible gives us because troubles are real troubles. Language is giving us a voice to our suffering. It's not, though, just a mere complaint. Lament is not just a mere complaint. See, the world knows how to complain. We all know people that are just bitter 
Unfortunately, we know people that are bitter and just complain about the circumstances and things of their life. They're mad about whatever ever happened. They're mad about someone that slighted them at work. They're mad about the person that cut them off. They're mad about how much coffee costs these days. They're mad about, they're just bitter about everything. That's not lament. That's just being a bitter person. That's just being like someone that no one wants to be around. Lament is different. Listen to how David, one-third of the Psalms are prayers of lament. The Bible is brutally honest about the brutality of life. Listen to David give his concern to God, but listen what he does at the end. Psalm 42. As with the deadly wounded my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see what lament does is it gives us language to speak to God, to pray about the brutalities of life, but the end of lament is speaking to ourselves the truth about who God really is. It's language to say, but oh my soul, trust in God. But oh my soul, don't be cast down. But oh my soul, forget not all of his benefits to you. This is the deep beauty of a prayer of lament, where you can be absolutely brutally honest with the struggles, the bitterness. The Almighty has done this to me, verse 13 and verse 20. But at the end can say, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for again I shall praise him, for he is my salvation and my God. She still goes back to Bethlehem. She still hears that God is the one bringing provision again to the house of bread. He's still her God. This kind of prayer, this kind of lament, this kind of way of being able to, uh, of watching Naomi give to God the brutalities and the struggles of life, at least begs one question in my mind. As I was thinking through this, how can God handle these kinds of laments? Or put another way, if God is just sitting high in the heavens and he's distant from us, how can he be trusted with our laments. Yesterday afternoon, after the, the wedding that was here, Vanessa and I uh, drove over to this new uh, Asian market that's over here on the corner of 82nd and Foster and saw a bunch of stuff that I have no idea what it is and, and got some kimchi because that's the only thing that I recognized. And on the way out, there was this furniture store. And as we're walking by, this furniture store, there was a, a bunch of these statues of Buddha. And I thought for a moment, looking at Buddha, when he's, he's, this, he's this big, jolly, plump figure with a smile on his face, and his head back and his eyes closed. And I thought, what an image of a God. A God like that can't handle a lament. A God whose eyes are closed, who's full to the brim, and has got a smile on his face. And looking at that image, it brought me to the man of sorrows. 
The man of sorrow is the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified on that tree for our sake. Who was naked and bloody and endured the righteous wrath of God for our sake. That is the image that's held up before us. Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians that we see, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That we are changed from glory to glory when we behold the man of sorrows. Because the man of sorrows is not absent from our trials and struggles. The man of sorrows cried the lament that you and I will never have to cry. The man of sorrows cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The man of sorrows cried, if you will, take this cup of wrath from me. And the answer that the man of sorrows got was silence. And the man of sorrows got the answer of silence so that our laments will always be met with the kind smile of God. Even if we don't see it in the moment, we can know for certain that God hears our laments, understands, is compassionate and kind because we know that the man of sorrows had silence from heaven when he cried out. He cried the ultimate cry of help. The sinless one. And he endured it for our sake. He can be trusted with our laments. He can be trusted because he understands the brutality of life. Which leads us to point three. The provision that comes. Look at 19 through 22 with me. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So, of course, this is the third part of this journey, from this crossroads from Moab back to Bethlehem. And it's a very poignant moment here, right, when the women, the women of Bethlehem, come out, and they're just kind of astonished, in a sense. They look at the horizon, imagine the scene, picture the scene. They, they, they look out, and they see this woman who's been gone for at least 10 years, right? And they say, is that possibly Naomi? Is that possibly Naomi? Think of what they must have seen, because the, 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 perhaps the, the pain and, and the sorrow could have even been etched on her face in some way. Maybe even her appearance was not the way she once won. She'd gone away full, but now she's come back empty. She'd gone away as a woman who had a husband and two sons with her future all before her. And now she's come back with all three men in her life gone. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. I think what she's saying 
I think what she's saying, of course, is that life has been bitter. This providence has been bitter because she says the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You notice what she says. When trouble comes, she says God is in this trouble. God is in this trouble. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of people even in Christianity who when your trials come and your struggles come and your difficulties come, will say, don't blame this, blame this on anybody, but don't blame it on God. But the testimony and the truth is that though this has been bitter, this is still a providence from the hand of God. God is in this struggle. In the midst of her struggle, she sees and acknowledges the hand of God. She acknowledges that the Almighty reigns in the affairs of men. She acknowledges that the Almighty is the one. God is the one who rules the nations. He rules families. His providence extends to the United States House of Representatives and to the Senate, and His providence extends all the way down to your kitchen table. He gives rain, He takes rain, He gives life, and He takes life. In Him we live and we move and we have our being. But friends, as we know, God's providence is sometimes very hard. God had dealt bitterly with Naomi. At least in the short run, it could only feel like bitterness. At least in the short run, in the moment, it could only feel like bitterness. Some could potentially say that all this was owing to the sin of going to Moab and marrying foreign wives. Maybe. text doesn't tell us that necessarily. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It was God who took away the famine, and it was God who opened a way home back to Judah and Bethlehem. And notice, of course, that special, sweet, small glimpse of hope that comes at the end of verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. If Naomi could only see what was going on, if Naomi could only see in this small glimpse in 122 what this meant for the rest of her life, if she only could possibly see what it meant that bread has returned to the house of bread. Because you know that Ruth is now going to be brought into this family and this book is going to end, of course, with a genealogy. This book is going to end with a genealogy that shows Ruth to be the great-grandmother of David. And David, of course, is in the, Jesus is in the line of David. If Ruth was brought into this family by some act of sin, it is doubly, doubly astonishing that she is made the grandmother of David and the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Which means this, friends, don't ever think that the sin in your past means that there's no hope for your future. God intends to fulfill a plan that is far greater than we could ever possibly imagine. God is always going to bring something absolutely marvelous out of tragedy. His provision. Last week, of course, we celebrated Christmas. We celebrated Jesus Christ being born in a cattle stall 
in Bethlehem. There had been darkness in the land. The people hadn't seen a prophet in hundreds of years. But now, in this cattle stall in Bethlehem, bread was returning. But not just any bread, the true bread, the true feast. Jesus Christ is the true bread, and he's been brought back to Bethlehem, and he's been brought back to you and to me. And that's the point. The point is that even in the midst of our struggle, even in the midst of our trial, even when it seems that the only hope is that our circumstances need to change, even when we, ha- we, we come to grips with the difficult doctrine of the love of God, that is his providence at times that is a bitter providence, but he is the one who's bringing us through it. You can trust that we have the true bread, the true feasting, and no trial can ever take that from you. He intends to fulfill a plan that is far greater than we can ever imagine. And the plan, of course, in this book was the book, the birth of Jesus Christ. Through the lineage of Ruth, God is always bringing something marvelous out of tragedy. He's always providing for us a provision. He's always bringing bread back to the house of bread. And we can know it, and we can trust it, and we can see it with eyes of face when we behold the man Jesus Christ. The true bread, the beginning of the barley harvest was coming back, and the beginning of the barley harvest is here for us now. Let us pray.